So, good morning. Hey, I'm wondering how many here have ever been to the Biltmore House? Ever been to the Biltmore House? Quite a few, at least a half of us. Yeah, I was just a little slow on the uptake there, Teresa. Right, hang with me. Biltmore House, and here's some interesting information, also known as the Vanderbilt Home, Asheville, North Carolina, the largest home ever built in the United States. It was completed in 1895, has four acres under roof, 250 rooms, 65 fireplaces, and 43 bathrooms. Now, I say it's a nice place to visit, but I wouldn't want to live there because who wants to clean 43 bathrooms? What's that, Dave? That's what wives are for, Dave. I can't believe you said that. We'll be talking afterwards. All right, big house, big house. Now, God wants to build a big home and a big house, of course, in Florida, but really on earth. And he's using living stones to build it. In fact, 1 Peter puts it this way, 1 Peter 2.5, you also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house. That's what I want to talk about today. God's spiritual house, which is the church. We're going to approach this by looking at three different types of stones that Peter talks about or Peter writes about here in 1 Peter chapter 2. We're going to start with the cornerstone. 1 Peter 2, verse 4 and verse 6. Peter says, as you come to him, the living stone, a chosen and precious cornerstone. So Jesus is the cornerstone. You probably heard that phrase before. Back in the day, in ancient times, right, they would lay the cornerstones, part of the foundation of the house. All the other stones and the rest of the building has to line up or align with that cornerstone. And Jesus is the cornerstone, the foundation of God's spiritual house, the church. This was prophesied in the Old Testament. We have Isaiah, for instance, Isaiah 28, 16. See, I lay a stone in Zion, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone for a sure foundation. So that's Isaiah the prophet looking forward to this fulfillment in Jesus Christ. In his earthly ministry, Jesus identified himself as that cornerstone. Mark chapter 12, verse 10. Speaking of himself, Jesus said, The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Parenthetically, whenever Jesus talked about cornerstone, whenever he talked about building construction projects, he knew whereof he spoke, correct? What was Jesus' vocation? Carpenter, carpenter. Or at least that's, that's the way we've commonly translated that word. Uh, the word in the original language is tecton, T-E-K-T-O-N. I only have it in Mark chapter 3 where Jesus is referred to as the carpenter. But tecton, now recent scholarship, is leaning this way. Tecton was really, literally, a master builder, just a master builder. Now, when the Europeans translated that word from the Greek tecton, like the King James Version, in England, other European countries, the most common building material was wood. So they translated it carpenter. And it's been translated that way ever since. But the most common building material in ancient Israel was not wood. It was stone. So Jesus would have worked with wood, but as a master builder, he would have worked with all kinds of construction materials and probably primarily stone. He was more of a stone mason, scholars believe, than a carpenter. Just, just an interesting factoid. He would have worked maybe on some of Herod, King Herod's huge building projects that employed hundreds and thousands of tectons. Sometimes Jesus may have worked under what was called an arch tecton or an arch tecton. Either way, that's more of a superintendent. 
Sometimes Jesus himself would have been the architecton. He would have been the general contractor over other workers. Isn't this the carpenter? That was used as an insult of Jesus. It was a blue-collar worker. He got his hands dirty. He mixed with those kinds of rough and ready people who did hard work with their hands. I'm sure they didn't always watch their language when they were around Jesus. They didn't know yet that he was the Son of God. So Jesus uses a lot of these metaphors, these building metaphors, when he teaches. He said to Peter, his disciple, at one point, who do men say that I am? And remember, Jesus, uh, Peter made what is called the good confession. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And that's where Jesus responded, all right, well, you are, you are Peter, kind of like this pebble, but upon this what? I will build my church. Upon this rock, I will build my church. Not referring to Peter, but to the confession that he had just made that Jesus is the Christ, the Savior, the Son of the living God. Jesus' church is built on the foundation, the cornerstone of him. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, the wise man builds his house on the what? On the rock. On the rock of Jesus Christ. He is the cornerstone. He is the foundation. The most important quality about Jesus that qualifies him to be the cornerstone is that he is alive. He is alive. Peter said, as you come to him, the living stone. He's the living stone. Some of you use the one-year Bible for your daily devotions, and most of you know that I do that as well. And if so, then you were reading just this past week in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 28, the resurrection chapter. You read there where the women were coming to anoint Jesus' dead corpse with spices in his tomb. And when they arrived, they found that the stone had been rolled away. There was a bright angel waiting for them. And this is what he said, "'Don't be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified.'" He is not here. He has risen just as he said. He's the resurrected Christ. He is the living stone. By the way, if you read the Bible every year, you get Easter four times, not just once. He's not only the foundation for the new creation of the church. He is the foundation for all of the new creation that we read about in the Bible. Let me read you a quote from theologian Jack Cottrell. He writes, Jesus' resurrection is not only the beginning point of the new creation, it's the very foundation of it. In other words, there's a cause and effect relationship between what happened to Jesus and what will happen to the rest of creation. We may compare the original creation with a magnificent building that has fallen into ruins. When it first came from the hand of its builder, it was beautiful indeed. Think the Garden of Eden, the original earth. But now it lies collapsed it's once glorious wood and stone reduced to a pile of splinters and chips. And then in the fullness of time, the original builder comes to the very site of the ruins in order to begin anew. When his work is finished, there appears amidst the heap of rubble a new and firm foundation laid upon the solid rock. This unshakable foundation is our risen Lord himself. First stone we're talking about this morning, the cornerstone, Jesus Christ, the living stone, foundation of the church. All right, second type of stone, living stones, living stone, living stone singular, now living stones, plural, verses four and five. As you come to him, the living stone, you also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house. <clears throat> This is what the church is made of. 
What kind of stone? Granite stone? Marble stone? Rolling stones? Living stones. Living stones are the Christians. We are the building materials that God is using to build His church. This is important to emphasize that we are alive because our pre-saved condition, our pre-conversion condition, is spiritual death. We were dead spiritually. Bible makes this clear. You know this, Ephesians 2.1. You were dead in your transgressions and sins. Right? Spiritually dead. And when we think about stones, we don't normally think of them as a metaphor for life. Stone, what are, they make tombs out of stones. You, uh, grave stones. Stone cold Steve Austin. Right? These are metaphors for death. But Jesus, like so many things, he flips that upside down. Now, he is the living stone, and when we come to him, we come to him as the living stone, and he imparts life to us. That's very important. That's part of our gospel message. That's probably the most important part, that Jesus imparts life to us. He makes us spiritually alive when we come to him. Ephesians 2.5, God made us alive together with Christ. This is the answer to the problem of death. Some of us attended a funeral just this past Wednesday in this very building. And those who didn't, we've all been to funerals. We know that our greatest problem is death. We're going to die someday. And we have many relatives and loved ones who've already died. If that was the end of it, that robs life of meaning or significance or any hope. But we do have meaning and significance and hope because our cornerstone is alive and he has made us alive as well. When we believe the gospel, when we repent of our sins and confess Jesus as Lord, when we are buried into Christ in baptism, the Bible says we are raised, and this happens in the mind of God, we are raised to walk in a newness of life. At that moment in time, God makes us alive. He makes us alive toward God spiritually, and He gives us the promise that one day He will resurrect, just like Jesus, He will resurrect and give us a body, and we will have eternal life in heaven. Now, I want to illustrate this, and I'm going to need your help. I hope you'll be willing to help me, and here's what I'm going to ask you to do. We're going to have a little bit of an object lesson this morning. And I'm going to ask you to do, I'm going to ask for volunteers to do two things. Thing one is to stand up. Really three things. Thing one is to stand up. Thing two is to form a circle. And probably we'll use these middle aisles and we'll, we'll complete the circle right up here at the front. And, th and thing three is we're going to hold hands in the circle. Okay, so we're not going to hold hands the rest of the service. It'll only be for a few seconds. And I do have... My handy-dandy hand gel up here, right? And so, if you, so if you've got germ problems or fears, or, or, or there may be some who are mobility challenged, but everybody who's willing to stand up and come to the, this, these two aisles here and form a circle and then hold hands, let's please do that now. Would you do that? All right, let's go. Stand up. Hey, oh, I'm so glad I got some people willing to do that. I only had like three people in the first service. Okay, so yeah, form that circle. We gotta, it's got to be completed across the back here. You have a chance? Mike Smith, you're not going to? Okay. 
Very good. This is a great circle, great circle. Now, here's what I want to do. Now, you've probably never seen one of these before, maybe one or two. This is a Steve Spangler energy stick. Okay, this is a Steve Spangler energy stick. And I want to use this to, for my illustration today. This today represents Jesus Christ, the cornerstone. This is where the power is, the energy. This is where the life is. Okay, so you two, Emily and Turtle. I want you, you're each going to hold one end of this energy stick. Because I'm going to hold it up here so everybody can see it. And so we can see it on the camera. But you're each going to hold one end. And don't let go. All right. Everybody's holding hands, right? All right, here we go. So watch what happens with, this is representing the cornerstone. All right, here, and I'm going to hold it up right here. Okay, here we go. You take that in, and you take this in. All right. Okay, Tim, let go. All right, grab hands again. Yeah, Haven, let go. All right, grab hands again. All right, thank you guys. You can have a seat. Appreciate that. <laughs> now, you probably see where I'm going with that. It's, it's a simple illustration, but hopefully it's memorable. When we connect with Jesus Christ, He is the source of life. His life flows through everyone who's in the house. It's what makes us living stones. And we are connected. So there are really two lessons. That's the first lesson. So Jesus is the cornerstone, the living stone. When we connect to Him, really initially at the point of salvation, we are connected to the source of life. And He is building us into what Peter calls a living house or living stone. So we're connected. But the third point here is notice when the circle was broken. And what that is, is actually a battery, right? It's a battery. And we formed a circuit with that circle. And so the electricity was conducted through that circuit. When the circle is broken, then the circuit is broken. And that's why the stick goes off. And that brings me to the third and final stone. And that is the stumbling stone. The stumbling stone. In verses 7 and 8, Peter says, But to those who do not believe, a stone that causes people to stumble and fall. So that is true, people, I mean, this is, this is why the gospel is so important. We want to bring people into the house of life. To be outside of that house is to be outside of the life and the power of Jesus Christ. I want to show you a brief clip here uh, about emperor penguins. There's something very important we need to learn from the emperor penguins today. And this clip is about two minutes long. We're going to show that, and I'll come back and make an application. Let's roll. To breed in the coldest place on Earth, emperor penguins must also become part of a crowd. Their chicks are born in the depths of the Antarctic winter. Their only protection from the cold is their parents' brood pouch. But as winter storms set in, this isn't enough. As temperatures reach 40 below, even the adults' only chance of survival is to huddle together. They start to waddle with a single purpose. 
all converge on the same central point until a huddle begins to form. Each penguin must find a place to tuck in. But by speeding up the action, it's clear that something more organized is going on. Soon, the huddle numbers thousands, and still more keep coming. While those on the outside take the brunt of the storm, those on the inside take tiny steps that move the huddle in waves. The densely packed penguins continue to shift and rotate from the center. By keeping constantly on the move, no penguin is left permanently out in the cold. Okay, so you see what's happening there is that those emperor penguins, they all take turns being on the outer wall of the huddle. They can, all, they can only survive for a while out there, and then they move toward the center where the warmth is, and the, the penguins in the, in the center move out, and they take their turn on the outer wall, and so it continues. We have to lean into the huddle. We have to lean into the huddle. There is a definite trend in modern American Christendom to view the local church as optional at best, superfluous at worst, unnecessary. Uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a Christian, I'm a believer, I'm, I'm not a part of any local church. I think that's a dangerous idea. That is not the picture of Christianity that we find in the New Testament. Now, I'm not saying we all have to do church the same way. I, I don't believe we do. I don't, say, I, I don't think everybody has to be a member of Vera Christian Church. I would love for everybody to be a member of Vera Christian Church. We got great music. Kent crushes it in the music. Nate crushes it with a family living, and the preaching is above average. Let's come on. <laughs> no? All right, come on. All right. I would love it. That would be great. We'd love for Vera Christian Church to be the home church. But, you know, this is not for everybody. I've been a member of a mega church. I've been a member of a mid-sized church, around five to 700. I've been a member of a church with 30 members. I've been a member of a house church. All, all of those are legitimate ways. House churches, mega churches, mid-sized churches, small churches, churches with very expressive worship, churches with more subdued worship. That doesn't really... That's not my point, is one kind of church. My point is, a Christian needs to be in a church. And sometimes we, I hear this. Well, I'm, I'm, in, I'm in the universal church, the universal invisible church. There is a sense in which the New Testament uses that word church, ecclesia, two or three times of the universal church. When we're saved, God adds us to his church, the universal church. But by and large, the vast majority of the uses of the word church is for local churches in the New Testament. Most of the New Testament was written to local churches. Right? The church Romans to the church in Rome. 
Uh, Ephesians to the church in Ephesus, Colossians to the church in Colossae, Corinthians to the church in Corinth, right? Thessalonians to the church in Thessalonica, and so on, or to individuals in local churches like Timothy, the preacher of the church in Ephesus. Revelation written to seven specific churches. The universal church of God is made up of hundreds and thousands or hundreds of thousands of local churches. The little penguin chick was born into the universal family of penguins, but he had to stay in some specific huddle to survive. And I get it. Some of us, we may feel like we don't need a local church. I'm an introvert. I'm a bit of a loner. I feel like I don't need anybody. Me and Jesus make a church. But I know what God tells me in his word. That's not true, Steve. You need to be in a local church because sometimes I'm strong enough to be on the, the outside of the huddle and sometimes I'm not. Can you relate? Sometimes you got to move to the inside of the huddle. Let somebody else take the brunt and, and help and encourage and strengthen. How do we live out those one another passages in the Bible? Love one another, pray for one another. Bear with one another, put up with one another, forgive one another. You do that in a church, in the huddle. So, well, I, I can do that in my family, you know. Our family is our church. Well, I hope everybody's family feels like a church. I do. But Jesus said, if you only love the members of your own family, you're really no better than a tax collector or a pagan. You need to do that. But expand your definition and your understanding and your belonging to a family. I know there are some people here today who are guests who are looking for a church family. Kudos to you. Blessings to you. That's the right thing to do. If we're not in a local church right now, we need to find one and lean in and plug in and dig in as deeply as we can into the huddle. Huddle up. Huddle up. We used to sing a song called My Father's House. This is what we're going to close with today. We're just going to sing this through one time, sing it a cappella, put the words up here on the screen. I'm going to start it off. Don't leave me hanging. Let's sing this together, all right? Some of you will remember this. <clears throat> Come and go with me to my Father's house. Come and go with me to my Father's house. It's a big, big house with lots and lots of rooms. A big, big table with lots and lots of food. It's a big, big yard where we can play football. <laughs> big, big house. It's my Father's house. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we rejoice today that Jesus is our cornerstone, that He is alive. We rejoice in the resurrection and that He imparts that life to us and has made us living stones. And you are building each one of us each Christian here is a living stone that you are building into your great house. And today, we're thankful for local churches. And right now, for this local church right here, Vero Christian Church, that we are blessed to be a part of. And we ask that your blessing and strength will be, remain upon this congregation, all the other congregations here in Vero, in Vero Beach, in the state of Florida, and in the nation, and in the world as you build your great house. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.